This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and centre. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. So it feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioural challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. 5pm in the City of London. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson. Alongside this evening, my co-guest host, Marcus Ashworth, is back for more, which is a bit of a surprise after last night. Uh, good evening. <laughs> oh, thank you. Nice so, to see thank you. Thank you so much, Guy. Nice to hear your voice. A uh, bit of an odd day today. What do you make of it? Well, I quite understand uh, what's going on. I know it's the end of the quarter and end of a uh, financial year end for Japan, which is possibly one explanation why things are a bit odd. But, you know, equities are sort of mixed, to we say, you know, not yep. not great. But bonds definitely are having a continuing tough time. Now, that might be that asset allocation for quarter year end stuff I was mentioning. Uh, or it might just be that no one likes bonds at all anymore. Uh, and you inflation... were telling me a day or so ago that, that the bottom might be in, at least in the short term. I, I said it soon, and I meant today, actually. <laughs> uh, I think it was what you, you misunderstood me. To. No, I did actually mean it was literally... Enter this quarter year end, right. you might think about saying, okay, this is not the right time to sell bonds. And uh, I, I stand by that. Okay. Um, let's just do a quick market check while we are here talking of bonds. US 10 year up by 4.9 basis points. The German 10 year, the Bund up by 6.6 basis points. The UK, um, not too bad actually, relatively in comparison with others, uh, up by 1.9. Um, we are now trading on the gilt at the 10 year gilt at 1.646. Um, Boris Johnson is speaking in Brussels following the NATO and G7 summits of a little bit earlier. Let's have a quick listen to what the Prime Minister is saying. He's answering questions right now. Russian air defences, and it does mean uh, taking down Russian fast jets and asking the RAF uh, to do that. That's not something that uh, any country here uh, is contemplating. What we are doing is steadily ratcheting up uh, the, uh, the, the movement of of lethal but defensive weaponry uh, to uh, to Ukraine, and that is growing in volume the whole time. And uh, what the Americans are doing, and what the, what they have done, is really quite extraordinary already. And the UK is is proud of uh, of what we've contributed. Uh, I'll go to uh, Sam Coates of, uh, of Sky. Thank you, Prime Minister Sam Coates of Sky. Um, President Zelensky, interestingly, didn't repeat his call for a uh, no-fly zone when he addressed NATO leaders. Instead, he was very, very specific. He wants tanks and jets. Are NATO members, are, is the United Kingdom going to give him tanks and jets? And if not, why not? Uh, thanks, Sam. Uh, he, di he did indeed uh, call for, for tanks, and there's a, there's a particular reason for that. Uh, what, uh, uh, what President Zelensky wants is to try to uh, relieve Mariupol uh, and, and, to, to, and to help uh, the, the thousands of Ukrainian fighters uh, in the city. Uh, to, to that end, he does need armour as he sees it. Uh, we're, we're looking at what we can do to help, but I've got to tell you, uh, logistically at the moment, it looks very difficult for both with armour and with uh, with jets. Uh, we're very conscious of what he's asking for. At the moment, uh, we're looking at the, 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 the equipment that we think is uh, more immediately valuable is, uh, is uh, uh, missiles that will enable the Ukrainians to protect themselves against bombardment from the air 
uh, but also to deal with the, uh, the Grad rocket launchers, uh, the, uh, the, the Russian heavy artillery uh, that is doing such uh, death and dealing such death and destruction in the cities. Uh, and there, I think, if we can uh, really help them, uh, that would be extremely valuable because th they need protection from that absolutely merciless uh, onslaught from, uh, from artillery and from, and from the rocket launchers. Uh, uh, the Prime Minister speaking in Brussels. Um, we will be back in Brussels in just a moment with Bloomberg's Anne-Marie Hordern, who is at NATO headquarters, or last time I checked she was. Uh, before we go to Anne-Marie, though, I think it's probably worth updating all of the headlines. Here's Charlie Pellet. Thank you very much indeed, Guy Johnson. NATO has agreed to double the number of battle groups protecting its eastern border and is working with the U.S. to prepare for Russia potentially using chemical or nuclear weapons in Ukraine. Britain's manufacturers grew at their slowest pace in 13 months in the weeks after the war in Ukraine, upset supply chains and drove up costs. S&P Global's index tracking manufacturing purchasing managers dropped to 55.5 in March from 58 the month before well below the reading of 57 that economists had expected. Lindsay Newman is director of political research at S&P Global Market Intelligence. She told Bloomberg Television this morning the hit to the economies of Russia and Ukraine will be long-lasting. Even if the conflict were to end today, we are not unwinding back to pre-February 24th. For Russia, um, our economists think the, the year ahead looks like a forecast contraction of 11% of their, of their economy uh, because of these sanctions and, and the corporate self-sanctioning. For Ukraine, uh, it's immense, um, the potential economic contraction uh, because of property damage and the massive outflow of working population and refugees. The Bank of England is warning that Russia's invasion of Ukraine has increased economic uncertainty and led to, quote, exceptionally high commodity market volatility, prompting it to delay the launch of its 2022 stress tests for UK lenders. That is the latest from the news desk. Guy Johnson, back to you now in London. Charlie Pellet, thank you very much indeed. Uh, the United States, the President of the United States, is warning of the threats that Russia will use nuclear or chemical weapons in Ukraine. How does the West respond to that threat? How would it respond? Well, I think there's some useful kind of areas of history that are worth examining here. When the United States threatened Russia and Syria, when they were threatening the use of nuclear, uh, sorry, uh, chemical weapons in Syria, the US didn't follow through with those threats. Uh, and that was a huge stain on the Obama administration's response to the war in Syria. The lesson appears to be, lear to be learned, because while the threat of chemical weapons or nuclear weapons is there, the deterrence is not being detailed by Western diplomats and Western leaders. Earlier, Anne-Marie Hordern in Brussels caught up with the president of Latvia to try and address this question. President Biden is now at this G7 meeting, and there's going to be a draft statement, a warning to President Putin about the use of chemical or biological weapons, which Jens Stoltenberg says will have dire consequences on NATO countries as well. Would you view that as an attack on a NATO ally? Uh, the use of uh, chemical, biological, nuclear weapons is uh, a big threat, threat to Europe, to the whole world, not only to Ukraine. And uh, we should uh, give an uh, adequate response to that. I cannot yet announce this response, but of course it would be a response for 
uh, for Russia, uh, Russia should uh, think twice before uh, Russia will use such weapons. We keep hearing about, quote, severe consequences. Yeah. You won't mention them, but were they discussed? What kind of consequences NATO and the West would we should, impose? We should not announce these conse consequences in advance. Wouldn't announcing the consequences potentially deter President Putin from using those type of weapons? Uh, the consequences would be, but we would not announce this in advance because then, of course, Russia will know and will calculate that. But you know what the response is? Uh, we will think about, and uh, this uh, calculated uh, ambiguity is a yeah. part of our tactic. Amory Hordern, our Bloomberg Washington correspondent traveling with the president, joins us now on the line. Amory, let's just talk about this. Has there been a series of decisions made regarding what the West would do were there to be a chemical attack or a nuclear attack in Ukraine? There hasn't been, Guy. We've heard, quote, severe consequences, but no one has come out with what exactly those consequences would be. You know, I, I think you're right to bring attention to what happened in Syria and the Obama administration, the red line they drew uh, that clearly did not work. And potentially there's some uh, reminders and people remember from that administration onto this administration what that could mean. But you hear them talk about severe consequences, but right now those are just words. Amory, I mean, is there a danger here that we focus on the sort of unacceptable elements of, of warfare that we therefore somehow almost allow what's going on at the moment and as long as that doesn't sort of you know step into into chemical or biological let alone nuclear that therefore becomes more acceptable than it really is unacceptable yeah i i think what they're trying to do the west is just create these constant deterrence factors but at the moment we don't know what that is right now it's just complete posturing and bolstering the eastern flank but will that be enough Amory, we're going to let you go. We know you've got to run. Thank you very much indeed. Bloomberg's Amory Hordern joining us from Brussels. Marcus, when we think about what is happening here, though, we are in danger of stepping into, into completely unknown territory um, in Europe. I, the, the use of chemical weapons, the use of tactical nuclear weapons in Europe. Well, that's I, my point. I, I, just, I just worry that we start talking about sort of there's certain red lines we then by definition are, are allowing what's going on as being somehow acceptable when it evidently isn't acceptable and that's where I, I think if we start talking about you know it, it just gets in a situation I, I would be very surprised of course we, we could be wrong that, that the rush would do that because I can't see the upside for them but strategically it's the, it, to do them or even tactically so they played at the edges already uh, they've got the response from the Midwestern media. They're, they're, they're trolling us. And I think we, I just worry that we play into their hands by letting the debate go on to not using chemical and biological wars. And then, therefore, that means that they can do carry on doing what they're doing, which is, is utterly unacceptable. Nevertheless, if you look at, uh, at Russian military doctrine, and, and Putin has introduced this over the last few years, this idea that you escalate to de-escalate. Yeah, I, I, I've read a lot about that. I, I'm, I just think that, you know, we don't, we're just second guessing him when so far I think that he is uh, not at risk of a palace coup in the context that but he is think bogged he is. down militarily so the fear has got to be that if this if he continue uh, and the numbers of casualties and the numbers of fatalities look absolutely enormous on the Russian side if if this continues 
he needs to look for an exit route or he needs to look for a convincing victory. Yeah, I think Zelensky has signalled quite clearly that he, he was, is prepared to settle if Russia is prepared to settle. The question is what I think Putin's trying to do here is get as much as he can, as quickly as he can, and there'll come a point when he's ready to, he'll think, you know, OK, I've achieved as much as I can. I can maybe I can take that the seaboard. I can, I can encircle yep. uh, around the Donbass and, and, and achieve a little bit more. And then he settles. But I don't know. I, I just think there's an end game here fairly close in sight. It's a question whether we, we allow him uh, to play it out in, under his terms. And I'm not sure we're playing the smartest game here, honestly. If there is an end game, there seems to be this sort of debate as to how quickly we go back to where we were before, if at all. What, what does the new yeah, environment I mean, look like? This is the other thing that's really worries me. If we start putting four countries around... Uh, you know, the whole point he said he doesn't want to be encircled by NATO. If we start beefing up all the countries around Ukraine, we are doing exactly what he said he's, he's reacted to. And I'm not sure what our end game there as success is. What, so, what what should, so what should we do there? Not support those nations? Uh, Poland is clearly extremely worried and has been, and has been warning for a long time. But you arm them to the teeth and like ram a whole bunch of battalions in there. You are, you are escalating. And, and I don't care, it's escalate to de-escalate, all that sort of, whatever it is. It's simple escalation. And that gives him, a, I think, a, an obvious excuse to his own people to say, look, I told you what NATO are trying to do to us. Here's the very proof. And then we really have a problem, which where we are creating our own problem. I'm not sure so that's So what, what do you do then? Do you, well, just, do you not arm those nations? Do you not reinforce those nations? Do you... I, how do you... I think putting tanks and human beings and things like that are not the way forward. We've seen what the success Ukraine have done with the drones, with a variety of much smarter reactions, and I think that there are cleverer ways of playing this. That's all I'm saying. Okay. In the, in the environment that we now find ourselves with, we are talking about a potential significant escalation. As a, well, as we're a, talking ourselves into it. As a financial, saying. okay, but 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 that's the reality. That's the conversation that's happening. How would you expect financial markets to react? Well, I don't think on financial markets. I don't think the financial sanctions are working here, and and you know, banning seven Russian banks from SWIFT isn't isn't doing the job. They're paying their coupons. They're not defaulting. If that's what we want to do, which I, by the way I think is self harm, but that's if you're going to do self harm, do it properly. You know what I mean? Um, we are paying them over a billion euros a day or dollars a day in, in, in for, for gas and oil. We are not preventing the Russian stock market. It's, it's open and, and trading again. Clearly, oil, Russian oil is getting sold on the market, uh, be it to China or other places we don't know about. The actual pressure here on the Russian economy is coming from self-sanctioning, perhaps, as in Apple Pay going, McDonald's. Yep. Thing, but it's not coming from, from the ways in which we are trying to do. And the oligarchs and, and impounding a few yachts may get some headlines, but that makes practically no difference at all. So I think, in some senses, financial markets uh, have to do their job properly, which is really shut down uh, the Russian markets if that's what we want to do. OK, we're going to talk about this in a little bit more detail next. Severstal failing to make a payment. We will figure out the implications of that next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome back. 18 minutes past the hour. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. So the, uh, the Russian steel company, Severstal, has become the, the first Russian company to run out of time to pay interest on foreign currency debt. This since the war started 
in Ukraine. It basically comes after Citigroup, the US bank, blocked the transaction that would have allowed the payment to take place. So in theory, we're now in a position where we could see Severstal ending up in default. Let's get some clarity here on exactly what is happening, uh, because it is complicated below the surface, believe you me. Irene Garcia-Perez joins us now from our credit team to give us an idea of what is going on. So Severstal wants to pay, yes, but Citigroup is blocking because of the sanctions that exist, not in the US, but in the UK and Europe. Exactly. So Severstal has the money and has a willingness to pay. But then um, Citigroup, which happens to have different hats in this situation because it's the correspondent bank in New York, but it's also the London branch is also the paying agent and the trustee of these notes. Um, so again, yeah, it's a bank in New York um, blocking this. Um, and the company issued a statement saying, you know, the bank has asked them to get some permits to, to pay in the US. From sources we got yesterday that what City has actually asked the companies to have off-act permission, uh, like U.S. Treasury the, the permission, US regulatory authority yeah. permission, yeah, to pay uh, in the U.S. But it's uh, it's something the company hadn't asked before, preemptively, because um, the Alexei Mordashov, which is uh, the controlling shareholder, is sanctioned in the U.K. and in the European Union, but not in the U.S. So company was not aware it needed permission by like from the U.S. Treasury yep. to pay there. And Severstall itself is not under sanctions. Is that correct? No, but the thing is because Mordashov um, owns more than fifty percent of the company and he is sanctioned. The sanctions extend yeah, to the U.S. I, I appreciate that. It's just a situation here that the city has the money. I think it's sitting yeah. on the money. It's the question of whether the U.S. Treasury or OFAC, the Office of, of Foreign Assets Control just gives the green light but this is a classic catch-22 who, who effectually says yes who makes the decision we allow russians to pay to pay this back so um how many days have they got grace period because normally it's like 30 days but this one is a it, it varies day. yeah it this one was actually um very short unusually short days, because typically yeah. it's 30 45 days it depends on the on the documents right but we are seeing a lot of russian corporates that have five days uh, or ten days. We had Evrats, which is uh, owned by another individual that is sanctioned, um, Abramovich, Roman yeah, Abramovich, Abramovich, Chelsea owner until, well, I guess he still is, still technically. Is <laughs> um, <laughs> and that one also had five days. And that one also had some issues to, to pay on time because of this sanction in between. Normally, you'd be thinking about recovery at this point. Um, but this company doesn't have any assets out, effectively outside of Russia. So what? how are, how are creditors going to play this one? How are they going to look at this? Is there the possibility that what they actually say is, we'll give you a bit more time, and as a result of which you can figure out the regulatory clearance and we'll kind of go from there. We're not going to, we're not, we're not going to um, sort of expedite this process. We'll try and elongate it. So because a company has the cash and the willingness to pay, um, that seems like and that sounds like the most likely outcome as it is right now because there's just a lot of uncertainty and um, the, the expectation is that they will get eventually the permit and they will pay. Yep. Um, but yeah, say in a scenario where they don't and they cannot pay, it's it's very complicated for bondholders because if they say what it's called acceleration and they, mm -hmm. re, they request to get fully repaid um, now instead of yep. in 2028 when these notes are due. It's the same issue. 
company has, may have the money but cannot pay it to you. So what do you do? You seize the assets there in Russia. And with cross default, is there other bonds and other other loans and other things which could get sucked into this sort of vortex from Severstyle um, or indeed subsidiaries? Potentially, yeah. Honestly, we we haven't looked into the cross uh, default yet. Um, but I mean, the whole point is this is forbearance, isn't it? Is you've got a company which has paid. Uh, it has done everything it, it can do. Whether its background is, is is good or not good is not relevant in this course. The question is, it's not been allowed to pay. Therefore, everyone, in theory, you know, you get into a, say, a, I don't know whether there are credit defaults on this particular issue, but let's imagine there are. How do you get a reference asset to, to obligation to to come against it? There is nothing you can give against it anyway. So the, the whole credit default process doesn't work either. No. So in essence, everyone just puts it on ice and forgets yep. about it, I guess. That's that's the most likely outcome, yeah. Okay, Irene, we're going to leave it there. Great stuff. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, Irene giving us the, the updates on the uh, the Severshell story. Irene Garcia-Perez. We'll see whether there are more of these kinds of things to come. Marcus, the other story out of Russia today has been the reopening of the equity market. I, it, it has reopened, a partial reopening, and is being supported by the state. I, in terms of how you, sh if you've got assets in Russia, is this a useful mark-to-market exercise? <laughs> mark-to-market, uh, wow. Um, I suppose it, it, it's just one of these things that just lifted a little bit of the, uh, you know, envelope to try and see what can go through, what won't go through, and and this is obviously, you know, you can't read too much, and it's someone. Your colleague Tom Keane at the chat with the bow tie asked me, you know, is the ruble, you know, dollar rate, is it a, is it a correct price? I mean, obviously, it's no, it's not. You know, yeah. what's happening at the moment is sort of staged trades. And this clearly is a, a stage reopening with Team Russia behind certain things to try and make a bit of a print. And hopefully over the, well, for their hope, that the next few days and weeks, it, it'll start to function. At least there's some form of liquidity. So, uh, and again, as I'm saying to you earlier, you know, the sanctions here are, are a danger of becoming ineffective if... They can get a stock market opening properly, which this was not. But international investors, there's no way of them getting their money out. True, but the whole point has been going is the last uh, few weeks there have been, uh, I'm sure, certain banks. I mean, the, but this way, in 2014, Sparebank was able to play the trade of buying from foreigners, selling to domestic, and they made a, a wonderful trade. There has trade been going on where foreigners have been able to sell into Russia, into domestic buyers who picking things up at 10 cents a dollar. That's essentially what is going on, which should be stopped, yep. is being stopped, and that's why certain US banks are pulling out of Russia. We'll be back with more in a moment. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. Guy Johnson alongside Marcus Ashworth this evening. Uh, quick asset check. The Nasdaq's up by 1.2%. Equities sort of strengthening now. The S&P's uh, up by 9 tenths of 1%. Uh, the FTSE 100 closed absolutely flat. In fact, Europe largely closed flat. Quick look at the bond market just to see what's happening there. Uh, yields continue to climb. So equities kind of going sideways today. Bonds continuing to go down i.e. yields higher. Uh, we understand that the president may be about to speak. Uh, I can just about squeeze in a headline update before he does so with Charlie Pellet. 
Thank you, Guy. Group of seven leaders are warning Russian President Vladimir Putin against deploying biological, chemical, or nuclear weapons in Ukraine. NATO has agreed to double the number of battle groups protecting its eastern border and prepare for Russia to potentially use chemical or nuclear weapons in Ukraine. The heightened readiness underscores the intense pressure on leaders who've gathered in Brussels for meetings of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, the European Union, and the group of seven leading economies. Well, can Europe avoid a recession? That question this morning for Esti Dweck, Chief Investment Officer at Flowbank. At the moment, I think I want to say yes, they can avoid a recession, but the picture is certainly uh, looking precarious at the moment. We know inflation is going to be a lot higher. We know costs are getting passed on to consumers. You have your heating bills, your petrol bills, uh, also now food bills that are going to start to go up. Growth decelerating. London police have arrested seven people in the UK in connection with an investigation into a hacking group. Police say the suspects range in ages from 16 to 21. Researchers who are investigating a recent spate of attacks against technology companies, including Microsoft, Okta, and NVIDIA, have traced the attacks to a 16-year-old boy living near Okta. Oxford. That is the latest from the news desk. Guy Johnson, back to you now in London. Charlie Pellet, thank you very much indeed. President Biden speaking in Brussels. Let's take a listen. Anyway, all kidding aside, thank you uh, for taking the time. I, uh, today marks one month since Russia began its carnage in Ukraine, the brutal invasion of Ukraine. And uh, we held a NATO summit the very next day. At that time, my overwhelming objective in wanting that summit was to have absolute unity on three key important issues among our NATO and European allies. First was <clears throat> to support Ukraine with military and humanitarian assistance. Second was to impose the most significant, the most significant sanctions, economic sanction regime ever, in order to cripple Putin's economy and punish him for his actions. Third was to fortify the eastern flank of our NATO allies, who were obviously very, very concerned and somewhat at worried of what would happen. We accomplished all three of these, and today we're determined to sustain those efforts and to build on them. The United States is committed to provide over $2 billion in military equipment to Ukraine since I became president, and I air systems anti-armor systems, ammunition, and our weapons are flowing into Ukraine as I speak. And today, I'm announcing the United States are prepared to commit more than $1 billion in humanitarian assistance to help get relief to millions of Ukrainians affected by the war in Ukraine. Many Ukrainian refugees will, uh, will wish to stay in Europe, closer to their homes. But we've also will welcome 100,000 Ukrainians to the United States with a focus on reuniting families. And we will invest $320 million to bolster democratic resilience and defend human rights in Ukraine and neighboring countries. We're also coordinating with the G7 and the European Union on food security as well as energy security. And I'll have more to say about that tomorrow. We're also announcing new sanctions of more than 400 individuals and entities aligned with, in alignment with the European Union. More than 300 members of the Duma, 
oligarchs and Russian defense companies that fuel the Russian war machine. In addition to the 100,000 U.S. forces now stationed in Europe to defend NATO territory, NATO established, as you already know, four new battle groups in Romania, Hungary, Bulgaria, and Slovakia to reinforce the Eastern Front. Putin was banking on NATO being split. My early conversation with him in December and early January it was clear to me he didn't think we could sustain this cohesion. NATO has never, never been more united than it is today. Putin is getting exactly the opposite what he intended to have as a consequence of going into Ukraine. We've built that same unity with our European, the European Union and with the leading democracies of the G7, in the G7. So I want to thank you, and I'll be now happy to take your questions. Since there's so many people out there, I'm going to be given a list. Now, how about Chris of the Associated Press? First question. So you've warned about the real threat of chemical weapons being used. Have you gathered specific intelligence that suggests that President Putin is deploying these weapons, moving them to position, or considering their use? And would the U.S. or NATO respond with military action if he did use chemical weapons? You know, on the first question, I can't answer that. I'm not going to give you intelligence data, number one. Number two, we would respond. We would respond if he uses it. The nature of the response would depend on the nature of the use. Uh, Josh of Bloomberg. Perhaps I'll just project, Mr. President. Uh, thank you very much. If I had your voice, I'd have been elected a lot earlier. I'll give it, I'll give it a try. He's got a long arm. Thank you. Uh, can you uh, talk to us about two things, sir? One, since your conversation with President Xi of China, have you seen any indications of action or lack of action from China that has led you to believe whether they will intervene and help Russia either with the sale of arms or, uh, or the provision of supplies to support this war in Ukraine? And secondly, uh, can you say whether this, uh, the conversation today turned to the subject of food shortages and what the U.S. will do to address wheat shortages in particular as a result of this war? Thank you. On the first question relating to uh, President Xi Jinping of China, I had a, uh, a very straightforward conversation with, with Xi uh, now, I guess it's uh, six days ago, seven days ago, in that range. And uh, I uh, made it clear to him, I made no threats, but I made it clear to him that make sure he understood the consequences of him helping Russia, as had been reported and as, as what it was expected. And uh, I made no threats, but I pointed out the number of American and foreign corporations have left Russia as a consequence of their barbaric behavior. And I indicated that uh, I knew how much he, uh, because we had long discussions in the past about his interest in making sure he had economic relations and economic growth with Europe and the United States, and indicated that he'd be putting himself at significant jeopardy in those, in those aims if, in fact, he were to move forward. I uh, am not going to comment on any detail about what we know or don't know as a consequence of that conversation. But uh, tomorrow is, is it tomorrow or next Monday that Ursula is having that conference with China? Uh, which, the first. On, on April 1st. We've had discussions because I think that um, uh, 
China understands that uh, its economic future is much more closely tied to the West uh, than it is to Russia. And so uh, I, uh, I'm hopeful that he, uh, he does not get engaged. We also did discuss today that there's a need for us to set up NATO to set up and, and the EU to set up a system whereby we have an organization looking at who has violated any of the sanctions and where and when and how they violated them. And that's something we're going to put in train. It's not done yet. So uh, with regard to uh, um, uh, Xi, I, uh, I have not, nothing more to report. With regard to food shortage, yes, we did re re talk about food shortages. And, uh, and it's going to be real. The, the price of these sanctions is not just imposed upon Russia. It's imposed upon an awful lot of countries as well, including European countries and our country as well. And uh, because both uh, Russia and Ukraine have been the breadbasket of Europe in terms of wheat, for example, just give one example. But we had a long discussion uh, in the G7 with, uh, um, the, uh, with both uh, the United States, which has a, as a significant, the third largest producer of wheat in the world, as well as Canada, which is also a major, major producer. And we both talked about how we could increase and disseminate more rapidly food, food shortages. And in addition to that, we talked about uh, urging all the European countries and everyone else to end trade restrictions on, on sending uh, lim limitations on sending food abroad. And so we are in the process of working out with our European friends what it would be, what it would take to help alleviate the concerns relative to uh, food shortages. We also talked about a significant major U.S. investment, among others, in terms of providing for the need for humanitarian assistance, including food, as we move forward. Um, Okay, you've been listening to President Biden uh, speaking live in Brussels, answering Bloomberg, Josh, Bloomberg's Josh Wingrove, uh, a question about uh, the uh, role of China in this and also whether or not uh, the conversation today turned to the food shortage story that Marcus and I were talking about yesterday. Marcus, let's just talk big picture about the, the US's ability to compensate the world for the loss of Russia. Europe needs gas. The U.S. can export some gas, but probably can't export enough gas. The world is going to need more food. The U.S. Can, and Canada could probably export more food, but enough food. How does, how does the world react to this? Because it's going to effectively have to, to pick sides. Where do I get my energy from? Where do I get my food from? And I think it's almost going to come down to that for a lot of, uh, for a lot of uh, countries. Am I going to pick China, India, Russia... Or am I going to pick Europe and North America? Because this resource availability story, I think, is going to be really relevant over yeah, the next six to 12 months. I have real uh, issues with some of my delightful European uh, colleagues and friends about what Europe needs to do, which is choose. Uh, they accuse often, uh, in very polite terms, the UK of siding always with the US and wanting to buddy up. But the basic point is, is, is siding with Russia and China, which I, I, I fear... Over the last few years, uh, a lot of Europe, particularly Germany, but also Italy and, and Greece and other other countries, um, 
specifically to avoid buying from the states for whatever reason there comes a, a point here is that you you have a limited options you can obviously go to the middle east to buy certain yeah. things that comes with with other connotations as well but bit energy bit food bit whatever it is um you know obviously the the, the real answer is to try and do as much domestically as you can which might need, mean fracking uh and other different things i think uh fracking but here yeah well, this in the uk but i mean the point is is that there's there's lots of options it means keeping nuclear plants open in germany yeah. and, and and lots of other different other options as well as food Again, you know, there are obviously very big wheat producers. The States, is, as, as Biden has just said, are, are a very big one. There are lots of deals to be done. I, I think there's a massive opportunity here for the West to do a huge free trade agreement. And finally, we've got a defense arrangement with NATO. The U.S. provides security for Europe. It doesn't mean that they should therefore get ability to sell just their gas or just their wheat into the, into Europe. But that's the paranoia, I think, in Europe, is that they are beholden, therefore, just the US. They but come a, that ship a satellite country. That ship has now sailed, though. Uh, Emmanuel Macron talked about NATO being brain dead. He talked about needing to taunt with Russia. He talked about ostracizing, effectively, Turkey. Poland did exactly the opposite and said exactly the opposite. Macron has now proven to be wrong. Europe doesn't well, have the choice he just He was trying to get a debate going whereby yeah. what, what are we doing with NATO and what is Europe particularly doing yeah. in NATO? And he was trying to get the concept of Europe standing up for itself. So I understand that the nuances of what, of what France is trying to do, and, and you know, bear in mind they have uh, probably the best army and, and military, pardon me, in, in Europe stand alone along with the UK. So that there, and there's, there's clear rapprochement going on between the UK and France on the security aspect. Yeah. So it's joining the, the dots together. You can't do security in isolation you've got to have trade you've got to have food and you've got to have energy all these things have got to join up and there's a chance possibly the west could, could take something out of this yep doesn't all have to of, be bad a little bit of a silver lining um okay we'll we'll talk more about commodities in a moment will kennedy's going to join us to continue the conversation this is bloomberg this is the cable with guy johnson and alex Steele on bloomberg radio so President Biden speaking in Brussels as we speak, answering questions from the press, uh, a firm focus on what the US can deliver for Europe when it comes to energy. Uh, clearly there is a fear in Europe uh, that any attempt to cut off Russian gas will have disastrous economic consequences. Let's talk more about this as this story unfolds in Brussels. We bring in uh, Bloomberg's Will Kennedy. Will, um, there is a, a lot of talk, a lot of transatlantic talk, that the US is going to be able to deliver cargoes to Europe that may partially compensate if Russian gas were to disappear from the market. Can you just give me an idea of the size and the scale of the export capability that the, LNG, that the US has when it comes to LNG? Well, I think the most important thing to say, Guy, is that uh, the capacity has grown hugely in recent years, but it's completely maxed out already in this crisis, this energy crunch that we saw through the winter before the war in Ukraine. Uh, Europe started buying huge amounts of U.S. gas. Uh, we tracked tankers across the Atlantic and there's been a record flow. The problem that Europe has is there's, there's no spare capacity. Now, there's a desire in the U.S. Uh, to add capacity. And I do think that uh, events in Russia mean that Europe will be willing to sign the long-term contracts that allow the financing and construction of new plants in the U.S., but those take years to build. So in the near term, uh, the impact can, is, will be fairly marginal. Now, will, will Europe be outbid other buyers in 
in Asia uh, to get all the U.S. gas it can, probably. But but there's no magic bullet here. There's no uh, reservoir of LNG exports that we can suddenly tap into. It's going to be tough. Marcus, you were saying that Europe doesn't want to become beholden to the U.S., well, understandably, but the point is, is that beggars can't be choosers. And at the moment, if they're completely beholden to the US for their security in all but name, then uh, quid pro quo, there might be a little bit more uh, friendliness with regards to trade. And, uh, you know, if you have locked yourself into, you know, amazing, if you look back on it, the way they've locked themselves into Russia, uh, which at least was a land delivered or under the sea delivered pipeline, which give surety of supply, but allow the, the actual storage of it to be controlled by Gazprom on European soil was even more mad. But, you know, obviously things need to be done differently. There are other ways, obviously, it's going to push renewables and uh, longevity of nuclear plants, things like that. But, yes, they do need to be more practical. And it's not just buying from the States. It's obviously buying from Qatar, in particular with LNG and things like that. They need to be much more flexible, much more open, and less restrictive on, on the perhaps the uh, nature of, of buying U.S. equals that therefore in, yep. they're under the control of the U.S. And that's the attitude I think it's got to change. Um, but with that can come a free trade agreement because, you know, all these things can lead to other things as well. Well, how long does it take to build a LNG um, arrivals facility? How, I, if you want to unload an LNG cargo, how long does it take to build such a piece of kit? Well, there are stopgap solutions. So there are many firms around the world that have floating LNG uh, capacity ships, with had, which have basically have a LNG regasification plant on top. Um, and there are moves to yeah. move some of those to Europe as a stopgap. Where are they now? They're, uh, they're in places like uh, Latin America, um, the Middle East. People who uh, who have, you know, the number of LNG buyers around the world has grown hugely in recent years. I mean, it used to be a trade that was dominated by uh, a few European countries and Japan, but a lot of middle-income countries like Pakistan, Bangladesh, uh, Argentina, have, Brazil have become big importers in recent years as their energy demand has risen, and often they rely on these floating LNG plants. Now, some of those will be able to move to Europe, and you can right. you can hook them up in a matter of months, but they don't provide the capacity that a big uh, regasification plant uh, gives you, and that's what Germany's trying to do with the announcement that Schultz made in his famous Sunday speech that they would build two plants as quickly as they can. Now, quickly as they can probably means at least two years. And Did these you? are big multi-billion dollar yeah. uh, bits of kit that require huge amounts of steel and engineering, and it can't be just done overnight. So there are things that we can do in the short term, but to bring the scale that they really need is going to take years, not months. Well, unless I'm, my memory fails me, didn't uh, Australia, uh, off the north the north coast of Australia, they had an absolutely massive uh, a plant there, floating uh, structure. And I thought also Shell bought, built two absolutely massive uh, LNG sort of, I'm not sure the ship is quite the right word for them, because they were vast things. But they, they sort of seem to fail and never really quite take off. Is well, that something that will come back again? There's a distinction to be made. What Shell built, which was actually, you can call it a ship, and in, in by some measures, it was probably the largest ship ever built, the That's right, yeah. floating LNG plant off North Australia. Um, it's there, it's working, it, it overran, and it cost a huge amount of money, which is why it's not been repeated yet. But the, the plants that I'm talking about are at the other end of the LNG chain, regasification terminals, which are basically LNG tankers, which are reconverted to just feed the gas directly into... Um, 
pipeline networks at the countries where they stand. And those are those are slightly less ambitious and they do exist. Not enough, probably, but some of them could be moved to Europe to, to allow LNG uh, imports to increase. But the problem is not necessarily with gasification uh, capacity. Germany doesn't have any, but France has a fair amount. Uh, Spain has a lot, although it's not tied in enough to the European network. The problem is that it's just not the LNG at the moment available. We have what we've seen over the last winter, and we will see this competition intensify as Europe tries to give up as much Russian gas as possible, is a fight between China, Japan, and Europe for these cargoes. And that could well intensify this year. And if we get a cold winter next year, we could see some really quite lively LNG prices. (laughs) More live than we've already seen. That would be very (laughs) lively. Well, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much indeed, Bluebox Will Kennedy. Um, Marcus, you got a diesel car? Uh, Yes. Is it full? I've kept it full. Because my colleague told me there might be problems in Germany and one, you know, that's definitely. It's going to be interesting to see how this one plays out because Will points to, the, to what could happen next winter. But it seems that diesel could be a massive problem this summer. And you, I, lorries run on diesel. And you think about the supply chain problems that could, could it emanate if, if we can't fill up our lorries. Yeah, no, it, it's definitely an issue uh, in the next week or two in, in Germany. And then, you know, that, it's going to spread. So, yes, it's keep your diesel car as full as you can. Okay. Sage advice from Marcus Ashworth. We will leave it there. Thank you very much indeed for listening. This was The Cable. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.